Welcome to the American Med Spa Podcast, Medical Spa Insider. This week, founder Alex Tiersch was joined by Hermine Warren, advanced practice medical nurse and owner of Faceology. So we are here with Dr. Hermine Warren, who is an incredible resource, and I'm so happy to have you on the line with us today. Um, You have been... um, kind of behind the scenes, quite an inspiration to a lot of people here at, at AmSpa, whether you know it or not, um, because you've done so much um, for the community, the, the injector community, as far as training and building your practice. Um, you are an advanced practice registered nurse, which means like um, all um, um certifications in that area, like nurse practitioners, midwives, uh, clinical nurse specialists, you are allowed to see new patients and do good faith exams and provide um, injectable prescriptions and things like that. So that gives you a lot of um, a lot of leeway to do things. And first of all, thank you so much for joining us. And um, if you would, why don't you just give um, our listeners just a quick little 30 second background on um, on who you are, where you are and and what you're doing um, nowadays? I would love to, Alex. I reside in Southern California, Los Angeles, and I manage a private practice in Encino, California. The practice has been in existence since 2003, and I am really excited because so much of this industry is changing all the time, and I feel very privileged and humbled to be a part of it. Yes, and we're well. We're privileged to have you. And what I found interesting when we were catching up um, before the call is, you've kind of taken um, not the most direct route to being um, uh, a provider in aesthetics. You've got a background as I think you said a commodities broker, where you were had your own firm. You were in TV for a while. You've kind of um, you know gone in and out of, of aesthetics and medicine, and you've got your your doctorate and your advanced practice degree a little bit later in life. Um, tell us how you how you came to where you are because you've got kind of a different story than most. I appreciate that. I've always considered myself to be an entrepreneur. I will say, however, that I did get my Bachelor of Science nursing degree and my nurse practitioner degree in 1974. Wow. I practiced for a while. I did a number of things. I also became a certified nurse midwife. And once again, I felt after a point that I really wanted to not be in the health field for a while. I needed a break. And I went more into the business world with business models. I was, like you mentioned, a commodities broker and was a co-owner of my own firm. And then I also became an executive vice president in television post-production. But basically what all this really says about me is I was this typical baby boomer trying to find what really resonated with me. And in 2003, I took the leap and I went into the aesthetic arena, and I have never looked back since then. I feel it is the best thing that I have ever done, and it has truly enabled me to go to work every single day and be really thrilled and happy that I'm doing what I do. 
what do you like about it so much and what, what, what fulfills you about aesthetics when you look back at your journey? Cause you've had, and I think, and I want to get into this a little bit more cause we talked about it. And I think it's super interesting. Um, you know, you, you're, you are kind of where you've always been meant to be, right? You've found your calling in life, but what is it about aesthetics that, that draws you to it? Um, and, and that makes it such a great business to be in. There are so many things and I will tell you a little, side note about myself, which if any of us are really transparent and honest, we might all admit it. I'm vain. (laughs) And so as I've been aging and going through my own process, I felt like what about any kind of a profession would really not only help me to help others, but to really feel that I was helping myself in terms of learning all the things I needed to know. And I was very drawn to the aesthetic arena. What I love about it is that I feel because I am older, when patients come into me, I can offer hopefully some very loving yet educated guidance to younger patients, but I can really connect with patients who are older as well. And when they look at me, they feel that I am going to be able to give them the best treatment they could possibly get because of the fact that I thoroughly endorse this field and that I am a participant personally in this field. And so they are happy when they look at my face, which makes me happy, and it enables me to make them leaving feeling that they are their most beautiful self or most handsome self. That's awesome. That's great. So, um... When it comes to kind of getting to where you got in your career, and by the way, I encourage um, um, all all the, all the listeners to to look you up because you're one of the. I mean, you're one of the most sought after trainers. You're one of the great trainers at Galderma, which does a great job in, in training. Um, and you have, um, like I said, you've had a kind of a different route to get into aesthetics. But what what struck me when we were talking and, and, and what I've learned about you is that you have made a conscious effort to to make the quality of your life and the quality of the life of those you treat a lot better, meaning um, you're not about kind of a churn and burn and get a bunch of people in and a bunch of people out. You really take your time. You have you've, you've made your decision that um, you are the size of the practice that you want, you're located where you want, and you're just kind of going with it. And and, and the reason I say that, and I would love to get your thoughts on this, is we get, when we talk to aesthetic practitioners and entrepreneurs all across the country, the one thing people always seem to want to do is they want, you know, they want more, right? They want multiple locations. They want a nationwide brand. They want, they want more, 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 more money, more fame, more glamour, all that kind of stuff. And, and I, I, I tend to be telling people, or I find myself telling people, look, you know, sometimes you can just slow down. It's okay to have a one room shop. It's okay to be one person. It's all about where, what your calling is and what makes you happy. And you seem to have, have really mastered that and, and, and how difficult was it for you to find that, that kind of equilibrium and what is it about your practice that makes that possible? Well, I think that's a great question and I'll try and answer it the best that I can and it takes me back to when I was an executive vice president in television post-production. To the world it seemed like a very glamorous job, it wasn't and I made a lot of money and there was not a day that went by that I didn't say, I don't like what I'm doing. I really don't like the nature of this business. 
Now, ever since I've transitioned to what I'm doing right now, what I felt in my heart was there are so many opportunities in this business to get eaten up by wanting to be famous and powerful and make so much money. But to me, I think you end up losing then the importance of what this business is about. It's tampering with the most incredibly important thing a person can bring to you and the most delicate, which is their face or their body mm -hmm. if you're a surgeon or also if you're not a surgeon and you're doing non-surgical procedures on their body, but they are entrusting you with a gift. And to me, I just felt as if if I make my business based on that model where people are coming in, going out, coming in, going out, I feel there's more of an opportunity for error and there's more of an opportunity for patients to really feel commoditized. And that was the last thing I wanted. I wanted people to feel that they are spending their time with me, trusting me and giving me their hard-earned money. I wanted them to feel like they were the only deal in town. And I think I've been able to accomplish that. And and you're in L.A. Obviously, um, in Sino, California. You're, the the practice is called is it is it faceology? I want to make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes, faceology medical. Faceology uh -huh. medical. Um, and you have. Um, and I, God, I wish I almost wish we had talked to you um, sooner. And I would love to get you together with some of our other guests and do kind of a group podcast about this. But you you have been operating on one of the models that has, um, and by models, I mean, you know, the practice dynamic, like how you've built your practice, not, uh, not actual patient model, um, where you have been doing a, a small footprint and only injectables. And I say only injectables and that you don't own any energy devices. You're not doing, um, cool sculpting or, or IPL or anything like that. Um, we have been seeing as of late, a lot of younger nurse practitioners and RNs and even doctors coming into the, into the industry adopting that same type of model or trying to adopt it because they want to have, um, it's an easy way to start with low overhead. But at the same time, I also see a lot of folks who start in that, in that, in that model and they, they worry because they're, they don't think they can make any money off of injectables. They don't think they're going to be able to generate enough revenue. Um, so Explain to to our listeners uh, what your practice is because it's, it's kind of a cool way that you've got it laid out. It's only six hundred and sixty square feet. Is that right? That's correct. And you've got but you've got two treatment rooms, a waiting room, and a consult room within that small space. And talk about kind of how you built this um, aesthetic um, and what your vision was for for having a practice that focuses almost exclusively on injectables and 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 um, and and what the kind of environment is that you wanted to create? Well, it's kind of, that's an excellent question and something that I really love talking about. I'll sort of break it down to a few different levels. You have a new person, regardless of what their background is medically, who wants to start a practice. And they're feeling in their mind, oh my goodness, how do I even enter into this path? How do I get into the stream of aesthetics and be competitive. And so I did a lot of research personally, and I looked at what could I control the most in terms of revenue that I was spending, and how could I capitalize on my ROI or my return on my investments? Mm -hmm. And what hit me was that with both of the companies, or any of the companies, but I tend to only do business primarily with Galderma, but there are one or two that I also do business with. You can purchase 
product on a Monday for a Tuesday, on a Tuesday for a Wednesday, on a Wednesday for a Thursday. So I say to practitioners, take note of that, because when I first started, I would look at my week of patients and what the procedures were that I planned to do, but I almost was buying product that totally dovetailed with those patients. I wasn't buying 50 syringes in advance and having revenue sit on the shelf and be nervous. And consequently, that's what motivated my decision to not get a huge piece of equipment because two things. Every single year, there are new energy devices that are coming out. There are new devices coming out for fat removal. There are new devices coming out for radio frequency. And I often say to my patients when they'll ask me, do you have thus and so machine? I say to them, if there was one machine that everybody thought was the home run machine, we'd all have to have it because don't we all have neurotoxin in our practices? Don't we all have filler in our practices? But every other moment it seems, and I'm being exaggerative, there's the newest, greatest machine. So mm -hmm. if you put out a capital expense of say $250,000, which means that in most likelihood, you have a monthly payment of anywhere from three to $5,000, right away that puts an incredible burden and strain on that provider when they're starting a new practice. How do I make that payment plus my rent, plus my malpractice, plus getting inventory that's current, plus furnishing my place, plus the many other things that are out there? And so that was why I chose not to get equipment because I felt I could be most relevant with fillers, do what I needed to do, and not get stuck holding the bag with a piece of equipment that might get outdated after a period of time and force me to do one of two things. If there's no upgrades, get another piece of equipment or actually convince myself that when I was telling patients they all needed to do a certain treatment, it was really for their good and not to pay my monthly payment. And that's really what's motivated my business paradigm of injectables. And it's been so positive and so much put me in the pocket of a positive cash flow and being negative rather than being in the red throughout my whole entire aesthetic career that I feel I made the right choice. Yeah. And you, and you mentioned a few things that I would love to talk about. So you, number one is kind of inventory control as well as, you know, capital expenditures, which are, you know, different things, but, um, related to the same, to the same basic premise, which is, you know, controlling your expenses. And so, I think that's a really, really good point in that when you are doing injectables, you don't need to be buying for large amounts for, you know, six months down the road. You can literally buy based upon your explicit and scheduled need, which allows you to control your expenses, increase your cash flow, and, and allow you to invest in other things. My question is, how did you arrive at, at that, that paradigm? And I, and I understand that, um, you know, where you're coming from, but as a, when you're first starting out, and this was kind of your, when you first opened uh, or, or started taking over the practice, you were doing this right away. You, you mentioned that you were profitable in your first year, which is virtually unheard of. Um, what type of analysis did you do to get to that point where you decided, look, this is what I want to do. This is where I'm going to go. Okay. There's one part of my story 
that I didn't mention to you, not that it's so major, but it's, I think it's critical for people to understand this. And I explain this to people when I'm talking to them in trainings or when I'm talking on podium. For one year, I rented a room and worked within someone else's practice. And although I was an independent contractor and really functioned as a solo agent, it was still under the umbrella of their practice. And I soaked everything up because I didn't like the way their practice was run. I didn't like the way they were not on top of their products, their revenue, and it enabled me to really see what was going on. And I guess the key takeaway pearl for this for me and for anybody is that we all like to think we are bigger oftentimes than we are. And what's really important is the only way that you can get really good at something is to absorb and put yourself in that stream of things that enables you to see what someone else is doing. Because if you don't, then you're really just making decisions that you think might work, but they're not based on anything. And what was it? And I don't want to, I'm not trying to throw stones or anything, but I'm just curious from an educational standpoint, what, what specifically was it, if, if you can share about um, the practice you were shadowing at that was kind of, you know, that, 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 that turned you off? Were there specific things with, what, were they not tracking things? Were they not in charge of their books? Was it about efficiencies? What was the, what was the kind of takeaway from that? The takeaway from them was I think it was all of the above. They were very loosey-goosey when it came to overseeing the financial flow of their business. Their front desk people were not very patient-friendly, and I think that's critical because your front desk person, if you have one, is the first calling card to you creating a positive practice. They talk to your patients. They end up checking your patients out. And if they're kind of harsh or abrupt, then that's the takeaway your patients get. Even if they liked you, they might not want to come back because they don't like the process to get to you. I didn't care for that. And I didn't care for the fact, and this is just my own personal thing, but I think it's an important thing. I am a clean freak. And I feel, especially in this business, I have a, a glass desk as a hypothetical in my office. In between each patient, I... Windex it down so there's no fingerprints on the glass because I feel if I was coming into a place where they're going to be injecting me, I want it to be clean and I want it to feel pristine. And I didn't like that about that practice either. So it taught me just a lot of things about the housekeeping of the business, the ordering of the business, and then just what I'd want to put into a business if I had one because obviously the injector I am today is a much more seasoned injector than I was when I first started. But nonetheless, I brought with my experience all these years just a better, I hope, version of who I am, always open to learning, always open to constructive criticism and help, and always wanting to improve myself and never feeling I've arrived, I don't need to do anything anymore. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's so often the little things that set practices apart. And when we look at businesses, um, whether it's, you know, in our boot camps when we're, we're teaching or we're doing consulting or, or, or whatever it is, when um, you look at the differences between two practices, one, 
you know, it has a clean aesthetic that is actually, and by clean, I mean, it's sterile and it looks clean. And the other maybe, maybe doesn't. It's how someone answers the phone and the, just kind of the joy that they, they have in welcoming somebody. Um, and the other maybe is not quite as, as much. And so those are the things that separate a really exquisite practice from just kind of a normal run of the mill practice. Um, now my, my follow-up question to you though, is that you do all of this by yourself. You've got, you are your, you answer your phones, you are your front desk, you're your own cleaning staff, you're, 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 you're your own medical assistant, your injector. How, how do you manage to do all of that um, by yourself? You know, I'm not going to say it doesn't have a little bit of wear and tear on me, but what it's enabled me to do by doing it by myself, because as I mentioned before, since I am an advanced practice registered nurse, there is a physician that owns the practice, but because of my advanced status practice, because of my advanced status in practice, mm-hmm. we communicate all the time, but he doesn't have to be there 24-7. So what it's enabled me to do by being the one-woman band, if you will, is that when I go on vacations, and I know a lot of people would say, well, this isn't a vacation if you do it this way, but for me it is. I have my calls transferred to my cell phone, and I can answer any call if I feel it's necessary, or I can make an appointment for somebody in the future if it's if I see that call and I want to take that call, which I usually do. And so it's given me the latitude to be anywhere and do anything I want, And also, and this sounds horrible, but I will say it in view of what I've seen in other practices and also what I saw in the practice I was in for the first year. Unfortunately, sometimes, as in the corporate world, people think, well, taking a ream of paper, I work here, that's not stealing, but it is. Or taking pens home, that's not stealing, but it is. I've seen too many practices where people help themselves to Botox or to Dysport Mm -hmm. or feel like, oh, well, you know, it's just a little here, a little there. What the heck? I work there. And I saw that very much in the first practice that I was involved in. And I felt I know how important the integrity of my practice is to me. If I'm the one person, I'm never going to fire myself and I'm never going to do anything to hurt myself. And it felt comfortable and it felt very controllable for me. Well, there's two types of practices. There's those who have been stolen from and those who have been stolen from, but they haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> That's what I've always um, said, because it, it, it's, it's unfortunately, it's a big part. Um, but kind of getting back to, I mean, so you're, you're kind of all alone in your business, which I, I mean, I think there would be a lot of freedom and um, nimbleness to that. You can do kind of what you want, make decisions as you want, but um, it's also pretty isolated and you're, you're alone. And what, what um, I'm sure there are, there are um, nurse practitioners or PAs out there right now who, who would love to do kind of something similar. How do you, um, how do you build that and, and, and fight um, some of the, you know, not being experienced in business, but also just being isolated and not, and, and not having anyone to bounce these ideas off of and figure out what to do. And cause it seems like, it seems like in some ways it could be a bit of a lonely existence. I think that's also a great question. And I will tell you sort of how I came to be where I am and what supported me in not feeling isolated. I created a very strong network of 
colleagues by joining the International Society of Plastic and Surgical Nurses, which I think mm-hmm. is incredible. Yep. I network all the time. I go to many meetings, and consequently, I've met many different colleagues that way. I found that in participating with many of my colleagues, two of them became very dear to me, and one is a very best friend of mine that we always can bounce ideas off of each other. The physician I work with, although he's not directly in the office, he will always take my call, and I think that the person that somebody hooks up with, regardless of what their medical credential is, you really need to pick somebody who really understands this business as an example, and this is just a little bit of a sidebar, but I think it's an important one. So many people are so anxious who aren't MDs to get into the business, even MDs who are not derms or plastics or, you know, ocular, but or ENT, which they still have an understanding to a degree. Right. There is no such thing as an aesthetic MD in the United States. We all learn the same way. And if somebody does not understand this business, they're not really a viable support person for you. They have to know what an occlusion is, know what potential loss of sight is and what to do, know what biofilm is. If they are just in a different realm of medicine or they're just coming straight out of school, there's no end to the education. So getting back to the question you asked, Alex, which is so critical, how do I not stay isolated I'm constantly in communication with colleagues, and by teaching, I've gone all across the United States, and the teaching has just gotten more and more accelerated as the years have gone on, and I felt that I was at a level where I could even be a teacher to somebody else. As far as starting out in the practice, I think it's critical to be involved with an organization where you can network with your colleagues and where you can constantly be putting yourself in an arena where you're learning more information, like going to the major conferences that are out there, participating in a conference like AMSPA, possibly going to a conference like Aesthetic Next, which is really an mm-hmm. up-and-coming conference and has a lot to offer. Just many of the, the Aesthetic Show, different conferences that are large and then even the smaller ones where you're learning, learning, learning. And that's how you don't feel isolated. Because at the end of the day, when you're in that room with the patient, if you don't have an assist, you are by yourself. Right. No matter whether you're in a huge practice or not, You, the end responsibility is on you. And I would say the only thing that's a little bit challenging, but I have just been so focused on not making it an issue for me, and I'm so prepared if, God forbid, anything should go wrong, is it's always so much easier if there was a horrendous adverse event that you were dealing with. If you had a secondary person in the room, clearly that's helpful. But for me, and my rooms are set up so that if somebody would pass out or if somebody would have a problem or if I would have a problem, everything, I know exactly where everything is, I know exactly what I have to do, and I think, like I say to many people when I'm training them and teaching, it's all well and good to do a great treatment and someone hugs you and goes, I love you, I love you, but I always say patients love you till they don't, and what's Mm -hmm. more important is to be able to brainstorm and help somebody if they're not in a good way, if there is a problem, 
because that's when the true professional comes out. So. Yeah, you know, when we were talking um, earlier, I I was I wrote down a bunch of quotes. You're 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 very quotable, Hermine. Like you 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 speak, <laughs> you speak in in kind of these um, these very quotable um, sentences. And one of the things that I wrote down was relates to what you just said. And it was you said anyone can be great when there's a good outcome, but you need to be great when there's a bad outcome. That's when you truly need to be good. Um, and one of the things that we talked about was because this industry is growing so quickly. And there's so much, I mean, there's just so much money to be made. And, and there's there's a certain glamour and sexiness to the industry that, that a lot of up-and-coming RNs want to be a part of when they look at Instagram. But um, you mentioned something that I thought was also very interesting, that you felt that it, um, it, it, it would take... Um, you know, we see people going to classes over a weekend or a day to learn injectables, right? And I put that in air quotes because it's just, it's, that, that's, that's tough to do. You recommend a, a basically an entire year of training before you go out on your own and start injecting people. Talk about um, how you came up with that um, kind of paradigm itself and, 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 and why you think that's so important. Okay, I think it's critical. And why I think it's so important is because, not once again of the good moments, but say for instance, somebody has a problem and they're in your treatment chair. We all know whether it's medically, as a med student becoming an MD, or it's a PA or a nurse practitioner or an RN, that school on paper is not patients in your chair. And so if people immediately focus on aesthetics because they think it's cool or they think it's profitable or the many things they might think it is, it is one little piece of a huge medical pie. And if you do not have a strong background in medical understanding of problems, then if someone has a problem, you're left really at a loss. And that's the thing that I think is really what a lot of people don't realize, that they're looking at all of the dollar signs. You know, it's not subject to any kind of Medicare or Medicaid rules. It's not IDC 9 or 10. It's just basically money, that Mm -hmm. cash on the barrel head, so to speak. But that really is a bad way to look at it. And I really feel so strongly that when you have that year of experience behind you and then you go into a subspecialty, you bring a lot more gravitas and you bring a lot more strength and stability to what you have to offer yourself for getting even a patient. Because like I said before when we were talking about the last question, at the end all and be all, when you're in a room, you're in a room, and if something goes bad, you can't leave a patient seizing, God forbid, or vasovagaling or having a problem to go run and get somebody. You need to start going into operation then. And I think it's important to have that medical background and basis to be able to do that. Well, there's, there's so much that goes into being a successful injector and a successful business owner kind of behind the scenes, right? I mean, and and we talked about this as well. It's one of the things that I think we deal with as an industry is that um, especially the best injectors, they make it look kind of easy when you're looking at it from 
Instagram or you're looking at it on a website. Like it seems like, oh, this is something I can do. It's, you know, and this is why you have, you know, God forbid you have um, estheticians uh, or, um, you know, non, non RNs or anyone like that injecting, you know, like people's noses and like in places where they really shouldn't be, I mean, they shouldn't be even involved in that at all. And you see them doing that because it looks and appears very, very easy and simple. And, and, but it's, there's so much that goes into learning how to be a qualified and expert injector, right? No question. And there's a there's a whole big group of us right now who have gotten just so horrified by people who are injecting themselves by watching videos yeah. and watching different kinds of social media things that have showed videos of people who are trained professionals and they feel they can do it. And actually, there's one in particular that was on a, a talk show with one of my colleagues, and they were discussing the, the whys and wherefores of why should you, why shouldn't you? And this woman absolutely feels that there's nothing wrong with her selling product that she gets off of a legal website to people to do it because she injects herself and so forth and so on, even though cases of blindness and different things have erupted. And I would say to you, I feel much like those actors and actresses who say, you know, every time I do my performance, I get butterflies, I'm nervous, Mm -hmm. and then I go on and I do a great job, and those are like your best actors in the industry. There's not a patient that comes in that I don't have a healthy amount of fear, and I don't mean fear to do the treatment, but that I am aware that what I am doing can potentially have life-altering results. And because of that, I think my rate of risk drops all the time because I really feel slow and prepared and conservative is not such a bad way to go. Don't miss the only national trade show by Med Spas for Med Spas. The Medical Spa Show takes place Friday, January 31st through Sunday, February 2nd, 2020, with pre show education and AmSpa's first annual members meeting on Thursday, January 30th. Don't miss the opportunity to earn 15.5 AMA PRA Category 1 CME credits if you attend the event and post show cadaver training on Sunday afternoon. With more than 100 educational sessions, more than 115 exhibitors and countless networking opportunities, including the fabulous opening night party. Why would you miss it? To save $50 on registration for Medical Spa Show 2020, use promo code MSSPOD50 at checkout. For more information or to register, log on to www.medicalspashow.com or call 312-981-0993. And how do we, I mean, I mean, and I have my own ideas and we're certainly at AMSPA, we're, we're working on this, but how do we go about fixing that? Because it's to me, and I, I always say this to, to folks, the only thing that is going to kill this industry or stop this industry from growing at warp speed is precisely what you just talked about is people who aren't, have no medical training whatsoever, injecting themselves or injecting other people. Um, 
that's what's going to be the death of this industry if it happens. And I don't think that's going to happen because we're going to we're going to make sure it doesn't happen. But nevertheless, like what do we what do we do to get this eradicated from the industry? Because it's a real problem. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And the woman you were talking about on the TV show wasn't even I don't think had any medical training, wasn't an RN or anything. It's just a person. She's a soccer mom. Yeah, she's just a um, and, you know, I happen to know from personal experience that you can get in trouble from buying, um, you know, Botox or Dysport from unauthorized services overseas because there's there's FBI investigations going on right now as we speak into people who did that. So it's not like that's not going to happen. But what are your thoughts on how we how we get through this and, and, and develop some minimum consistent standards in the industry so we can all be safe, which is going to make everybody more money in the end? I think as a start, and some of us have started doing it. Instagram, specifically, needs to not have professionals doing videos on how to inject areas of the body. Now, it doesn't mean that in a, in a perfect world, we couldn't come up with a password in place on Instagram where only people who had that passcode could get on to see these or like a Medscape where you have to be a medical professional to get on it. But just like you said before, Alex, you see something on social media and it looks so darn easy because these are people who have spent tens, Mm -hmm. decades of years learning how to do it properly. And you go, I can do that. And I almost feel that sometimes the professionals in an effort to show their stuff are also provoking that lay population in thinking that it's okay, that we are our own worst enemies. And, you know, as a alternative in Canada, you can't do that. And their, if you will, their version of the FDA and their monitoring bodies literally find people and you can lose your license if you have anything that's self-promotional on social media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's an interesting kind of dichotomy because one of the other things, one of the other quotes that I wrote down from you um, was um, you are, and I'm going to probably butcher this, so forgive me, but you do not subscribe to not sharing. Remember that? It's when it's, right. it's, um, and, and we've seen a lot of this. There's um, some of the folks we've been talking to talk about, um, you know, cooperation, not competition. And, and what we've seen as the industry has grown more competitive and it's grown more lucrative, you see some of these kind of more cutthroat business folks coming in, unwilling to share anything, unwilling to t- even talk to one another. Um, and you subscribe to the that's not a good idea. We want to share. But your point is that while it's important to share and correct me if I'm wrong, it's important to share information with others so that we all can be better and grow. You don't necessarily want to be telling every Joe Blow on the street how to do an injection because they're going to think that it looks super easy and they're going to go and try and do it themselves. That's correct. I mean, I think that there is boundaries and parameters that good professionals that I know try and follow for sure and that they are not touting how great they are to people where it would be inappropriate to be sharing that kind of information. On the other hand, in terms of colleagues and collegial 
openness. I think that we, to quote some politicians who've used this phrase and other people have used it, it takes a village and we are better together. And we are better together. If all of us subscribe to certain ways of practice and we really embrace that and we go forward as a community, then there's a lot less injury out there. And I think there's a lot less of people bending the rules because if there is no, if it's ordered chaos and there is no law, there is no rule, there is no way and bylines and guides of how you do something, then that's what provokes cowboys or cowgirls. Mm -hmm. If there's certain things you can't do, then you can't do it. And if you do it and the penalty is really harsh enough, I think you don't do it anymore. I mean, nobody is impervious to a severe outcome and it's life changing. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And so rather than me ever thinking, oh, that would never be me, I always try and think as my mantra, what can I do so that would never be me? Well, and if you treat enough, if you treat enough patients, you're going to have an adverse outcome. I mean, it's just a, it's a matter of statistics. I don't mean an adverse outcome. I've had adverse outcomes. I mean a life-changing adverse outcome. Oh, I got gotcha. Like stroke, like blindness. I mean something that is really pivotal in changing how somebody views their whole practice because of the consequences of that outcome. For instance, I always say this to people too, if you're an injector, it's not when will you have an occlusion, it's, it's not if you'll have an occlusion, it's when. Right. It's how do you treat it once you have it. But that's different than potentially doing reckless things that can create a life-altering outcome. Yes, indeed. And that's not easy in this industry sometimes in, in some of the places where I know we've got, we've had some problems where um, you've got more lackadaisical rules, you've got next to zero enforcement. Um, and as a result, you've got people saying, well, no, I've been doing, you know, even if, even if what you're saying is true, I've been trained as an injector. I've been doing this for a couple of years. I know what I'm doing, even though they have no medical training whatsoever, they still think they can do it. And it's just, I always, I always reject that because it's, it's, you know, this is serious stuff. Like, like you're like the, the, the severe life-changing adverse outcomes that you're talking about are are rare. And if you know what you're doing, you can, and, and I, again, I'm a lawyer at training, so I'm, this is not my area of expertise, but if you know what you're doing and you have enough training and experience, most of those things, my understanding is you can, you can correct. Um, but if it's, it's where if you don't know how to do all that, you really can have a serious outcome and, and really change somebody. I mean, when you're talking about blindness, I mean, that is something that is just unbelievably difficult to even fathom happening to to one of your one of your patients. And you you were sharing a story where someone was you know was saying that you know they inject um, around the nose a bunch of times and that they've been doing it for a long time and the, and but th- and that's one of the places that, that 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 can be the most dangerous to do. And people just don't they, they just don't know. It's almost like an education thing. There needs to be a like a PR campaign. Well, it, it needs to be, and this is the saddest thing of all. Sometimes it needs to be a problem that sets somebody's eyes open. What I will say in in response to something you just said is you're right. Blindness is not commonplace. 
but it can happen to somebody who's an incredible professional. It can just happen, and it can be, unfortunately, bad luck. And that's why people need to really approach this business with that respect that what they're doing can potentially have really bad outcomes or not, but that they shouldn't be so cocky to think, ah, it would never happen to me, or this is easy, or I do it all the time, or, you know, I can do it and not really give it the thought that it really needs to have behind the intention. Yeah. Yep. No, Hunter, I think you're absolutely right. So um, when it, I, I kind of want to circle back and I want to, I, I, I want to touch upon your, your practice again, because I think it's so impressive what you've built, not only, you know, what you've built, but kind of where you've, you know, where you think you are in, in, in your life. And, and you seem to have kind of reached an equilibrium um, between work and, you know, work life balance. That is, that is great. And when, when you um, talk about, um, your practice, if, if someone says to you, um, you can't make money off of an injectables practice that has 85% injectables and no energy devices, because I hear that all the time. You'd be surprised how many people tell me, oh, no, the margins aren't good enough. What's your response to that? I think that my response to that is, A, that's not true. But then again, I will say to people, and I talk to so many people I can't even begin to put it into a number that I'll often say you need when you go into this business to have your business plan and decide what kind of a practice you do want to have. I decided early on for my comfort level and for my patients, I did not want to do it on the one patient every 20 minutes or one patient every 25 or a half hour. I just didn't want to do that. Yes, that means less revenue for me, but it meant good revenue for me. Mm-hmm. And I have been very pleased. This will sound so not business-like, but I thought when I went into the aesthetic realm, I said, if I can be making enough money to always cover my bills, always be in the black, go on the vacations I want to go on, drive the kind of car I want to drive, and give myself the kinds of things in life I'd like to have, to me, that's a good, solid business. If I can't do that, I'm going to shut it down. I gave myself a month to month to month for a few years, and as my business continued to accelerate, I said, this works for me. I'm able to do all of that for myself, and I really don't want more. If I wanted a seven-figure business, which I don't have, I would need to be more than one singular person because let's face it, what can one person do? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, because of all the things we've talked about this morning, and I would say to any of the people who would be listening to this podcast, that in view of knowing that there can be problems when you're injecting, if you're too quick, if you're not focused, if you're not totally present, I chose that business model knowing that I was going to be able to not be anxious about a waiting room filling up with tons of people because I'm overbooked. I would not feel like I'm going to feel pulled apart because there are other things I have to attend to or there's another practitioner that needs my help. It's just me focusing with my patient, and I really like that, and I have found over the years 
that unequivocally my business, which I, I am thankful for, believe me, continues to grow and grow and grow. And if you were to say to me, which I'm thinking it would be a next Alex question, well, how do you get your business? I don't advertise. I don't promote it as a business, like come to me on social media. What I do is it's all patient referral. And when you have a strong, solid base of patients, they will refer you because they're really happy and they feel safe with you. And that's really been the whole driving force of my business, referral. Well, you do. So you... Um, and that's that's uh, that was going to be my next question, and I wanted to kind of dovetail a little bit into, um, you know, getting patience and making money. Obviously, you can't you can't continue to operate if you're not bringing in revenue. And you and you and you mentioned um, you didn't want to treat in twenty minutes or thirty minutes. How long typically do you spend with a single patient? An hour, regardless of what they do. Really? So even if they just want to. Uh, quick touch up on their forehead or whatever it's just an hour yeah because I and once again this just gets into me being me a lot of people have different ways that they approach the business but every time a patient comes in to me I redo their good faith exam to make sure there are no health changes I take my time with them we can we have a conversation where they're at with their aesthetic plan what we're going to be doing today I go over with them again, their consents, they sign consents every time they come in, Mm -hmm. every single time. And every single time I go over with them what the potential problems might be, what the potential upsides are, downsides, so forth and so on. And if you really do that and you take your time with a patient, I can tell you, you need an hour. Yeah. And then if you can share, how many patients do you typically treat a day? I mean, are you pretty much booked back to back the whole day? Um, it really depends, and someone asked me this a day or so ago, like how many do I see in a day? It depends on the type of treatment that I do, but anywhere it can be as little as six, as much as 10 to 12. It just depends. Right. Um, and then you, But you also mentioned something um, that I've heard um, from one of my buddies here in Chicago, Dr. Stephen Diane, who is... Um, kind of one of the godfathers of aesthetic marketing back in the day. Um, and you mentioned something very similar to something that I, I saw him preach, is that sometimes the best marketing tool is to turn a patient away and to not treat them when they want to be treated. Um, why is that? And, and, and why, do you, um, why do you do that at times when someone's trying to give you money and you're telling them basically no? goes back almost actually to what I did my doctorate on, which was realistic expectations. I can look at a face, and if somebody comes in and says to me, Hermine, I want to, you know, really fix up my face, and I can tell that they need multiple syringes, and they say to me, but I really only want to use do one syringe, I don't have the money. Well, I notice a difference, and I like to go to baseball, and I'll say to them, it's not a home run, it's not a triple header not even a doubleheader. I said, it's basically a a bunt and you're slowly crawling to first. Mm -hmm. So they go to me, what does that mean? I said, you're going to hardly notice anything. Yeah, you'll notice a little bit of something, but you're not going to notice a lot. 
And they go, really? So do you think I should do it? And I said, if that's all you want to do and you're okay with very little, yes. If not, no. And many of them have said, all right, then I'm not going to do it. And I said, good. Because to me, the biggest problem practitioners, especially when they're starting out, get into this. So, A, not wanting to lose the revenue. Mm-hmm. B, wanting to make the patient happy, but that they're not really addressing in their own mind the reality of what does it mean partial correction versus full correction and how is that going to bite you in the butt later on and I can tell you it does because I've had patients when I first started and I didn't really have a good assessment myself as to how much they needed I get calls in the parking lot I mean I'm looking in the mirror in my rearview mirror I don't really see a big difference and (laughs) blah 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 what do you think And I came to realize that if I don't do something because I don't feel I can give someone the outcome they want, they are more grateful and might ultimately come back to do it the way it needs to be done, or at least they're out in the community and they very much respected the conversation that we had versus feeling very disappointed and feeling betrayed and feeling that they spent their hard-earned money Because to us as practitioners, we might think one syringe is no big deal, but to some people, that might be a very big deal financially and emotionally. And if they still feel they look exactly the same, and why wouldn't they? Because one syringe is just a fifth of a teaspoon. Mm -hmm. Then they feel really angry. And that's the last thing you want to provoke is somebody feeling ripped off. Well, and... and what about we're, we're we're actually creeping up on an hour here, which is amazing um, um, already. But what about kind of the opposite situation where um, somebody like and I I will use lips as an example. Somebody wants bigger and fuller lips, but 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 you can see from just their their history and just the way that they look that 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 they don't need it and they shouldn't do it. How do you? What are some ways to gracefully tell somebody? Look, this is not something you should do, you should save your money or come back later, or, or how do you go about doing that for giving some advice to some of the younger injectors out there? I will give you two sides of me. One is the beautiful, lovely side, and the other side, not so much so. <laughs> but in general, I have lost patients because I would not inject them the way they wanted to be injected because I felt that it was going to be unattractive, throw their whole facial landscape off so much. And I didn't want them going out there and someone saying, who did your lips? And they went, my name, when I knew that it would really be more of a caricature rather than something I thought was aesthetic beauty. Um, The greatest, Mm -hmm. most graceful way to say it is, I hear what you want. And I really appreciate what you want, but I don't think how I inject could make you happy. And so I don't think we're a good match. Mm -hmm. And that's that. The result is you're going to lose that patient because if they want a certain thing done, they're going to seek it till they find it. Right. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many patients I have turned away because they've come into me and they've wanted to be injected and they had infections on their face or they had sinus infections and I wouldn't do their neurotoxin. Why not? I said, because I'm not. Or they had severe dental problems and I didn't want to inject them because there were infections in their mouth and it was near their mouth. And I think the biggest thing, which is a hard thing, 
is that you really have to hold on to your medical integrity and answer to your gut. Do not let a patient's cajoling, begging, whining, oh, it's okay, I won't be upset with you, just do it. I don't do it. I won't do it. And I really can tell you, if I had to look back at my whole career, I've maybe made one or two, three maybe the most times where my way of explaining myself got exasperated. And I wish if I could have a do-over, I would have liked to have been more empathic and less, no way. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I just know that if I feel a certain gut intuitive instinct that it shouldn't be done, I will not be deterred. And I'm really happy that I am that way. And I, I, I really say to everybody who's starting practice, listen to your gut because your gut is usually 100% correct. Mm-hmm. And one of the quotes you, you had, again, that I wrote down, you want to help people be the be as beautiful as they can be without becoming a cartoon of themselves, which I thought was really just that image of someone being a cartoon of themselves to me is is really what this is all about. And you see that a lot. And that's just what we're trying to avoid. And it's 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 not helpful. I mean, every every patient is a walking, you know, billboard for your practice. So, um, you know, people I just I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, it's but it's not always easy to do. Um, it's not always easy to do. So um, we have been talking for a full hour, and I, I got to tell you, um, it's flown by, which is great. I, I really, really appreciate you um, being part of this, and I, I encourage everybody who's listening to look you up. Actually, you're going to be, um, again, also at in Vegas at the Medical Spa Show um, in um, end of January, which we're so happy to have you. We also want to get you more involved with, with AmSpa because you're phenomenal. Um, one thing I would, I, would wanna, I would want you to leave people with is um, there are a lot of younger um, injectors or um, RNs or NPs who want to become injectors out there listening because I talk to them. Um, what's um, what's a piece of advice you would give somebody about who's looking to get into this industry um, and is trying to figure out which way to go, whether to do it, whether or not to do it? What um, what could what would you go back and tell yourself, you know, 15, 20 years ago about this? I would say I wish I had joined a professional organization earlier because what better place to learn and to be surrounded by colleagues who have history behind them in this business and who can really talk to you about some of the pitfalls that they encountered. And I would say to people first starting out, it's really important to get many, many, many hours of continuing education and to learn properly how to inject, what to look for, to be able to put together your policies and procedures, to really not think that it's just where you want to have a practice, you open the door, you put up your shingle, and therefore send me a syringe, you know what you're doing. I had mentioned this earlier on in the podcast, but there is no aesthetic MD in America. It's only in Europe. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> doctors learn the same way we do. And one weekend class does not make you a good injector. I remember the first time I ever injected somebody, and I have a a strong personality, and 
I was sweating under my arms and every other place you could sweat. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh my God, oh my God, and I'm injecting her. And she was a friend. And she said, how's it coming out? And I went, great, great. <laughs> and when I think about who I am now versus who I was then, it's not that it came out poorly, but we all have to start somewhere. The difference is, is this is on somebody's face. So there's a lot more inherent responsibility that you have for a person because if you alter their face in a way that they find distasteful, it's not an okay thing. Or it's not like, oh, just wait six months, it'll be better. It becomes a very upsetting thing. And so it's important to get those classes, find good classes, find mentors in the industry like myself. And there's a whole list of other people who are always open to talking to people and directing them and helping them and to really avail themselves of conferences like AMSPA, like I said before, Aesthetic Next. Dr. Keon Karimi has a great conference, The Aesthetic Show, mm -hmm. um, ISPAN, which is the International Society of Plastic and Surgical Nurses. But all of these professional organizations really put forth so many different symposiums and workshops and let themselves put forth to learning, to new people who are learning, the opportunity to be around people who are confident in what they do to help those who are learning gain that confidence. That's well said. I don't think you can say it any better. Um, um, Dr. Warren, thank you very much for coming on um, the podcast. And we'll have to have you back again because I think you're a wealth of information. And I truly appreciate your time. And thank you so much for having me. I really, truly mean this when I say I always feel humbled when somebody seeks me out to participate because it means the world to me to feel that the aesthetic community sees me as somebody who has something to offer. And I thank you for having me today, Alex. Of course. You, and you definitely do. Oh, I, one thing I did forget. Let's um, give a shout out to uh, to your website or your Instagram handle. Where can people find you if they want to uh, if they do want to seek you out? Um, my thank you for that. My Instagram handle is hooked on fillers. <laughs> okay, you said hooked on fillers, like you're hooked on fillers. Like I'm hooked on fillers, okay. and my email address is faceology. That's F is in Frank, A C is in Carl, I A is in Apple, L O G Y at AOL dot com. Awesome. That is awesome. Well, and you'll be in Vegas. Come see her there. Um, you're, you're a joy to talk with and work with, and I look forward to doing more in the future. And thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week with the American Med Spa podcast, Medical Spa Insider. This week, founder Alex Tiersch was joined by Hermine Warren, advanced practice medical nurse and owner of Faceology.